forever. Dog. Hey, I'm Gabe Gonzalez, and you are listening to the QWERTY Podcast. This is a weekly show from QWERTY and Forever Dog, where I'll be covering news, politics, and pop culture impacting the LGBTQIA community, and I am also going to invite a guest to just hang out a little bit, reflect on the week, generally keep it cute, our only mandate's here. This week's headlines include some long overdue news regarding an Emmy nomination. Well, many, in fact. The disappearing act that wasn't a hit with Boston's queer community and an update on a story we covered a few episodes back regarding buses, lesbians, and legal action. We've also got a really, truly incredible guest on the show today. Writer, actor, comedian, a tastemaker, a favorite with any crowd, probably your crush or your ex based on their tweets. The very funny and always correct... Just Tom is here to hang out for a little bit, and I'm really excited to talk to them. Uh, but first, we have to get to those headlines in a little segment I like to call Catch Her Up. Our first headline of the week, MJ Rodriguez makes Emmy history as the first trans person nominated in a drama category. After her third and final season on the series Pose, which was inspired by the New York ballroom scene, she's become the first openly transgender woman to score an Emmy nomination for Best Lead Actress in a Drama. Laverne Cox uh, was the first openly trans person to be nominated for an Emmy Award in any acting category when she was nominated for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series in 2014. There are so many trans nominations uh, in the past to celebrate. It's just really exciting to see MJ added to that list of people, especially for her work on such an incredible show. Other exciting nominations include Bowen Yang as the first featured player on SNL to be nominated for an Emmy, uh, Michaela Cole being nominated for I May Destroy You after the series was notably left out uh, last year uh, at the Globes. I think it was and legendary scoring nominations in two technical categories although i would personally like to see it nominated in the best reality show category i we've gotten two seasons of really really excellent reality tv um it's incredible i'm shocked it hasn't happened yet anyway We've got the next few months to pretend we love award season again until the actual Emmys air and someone or some show gets snubbed. We can all go back to hating it until the nominations come out again and we get excited for queer and trans people all over. An unbreakable circle, a natural cycle of life, the death and rebirth of the televisual culture, the Emmys. All right, our second headline of the week. The ACLU steps in to sue a school district that suspended a student for saying she's a lesbian. A while back in the podcast, uh, we talked about a student in Kansas named Izzy who was written up by her bus driver for telling another student she was a lesbian. The bus driver cited her for inappropriate language and the student ended up being suspended. Now the story is back in the news because this Kansas school board found both the bus driver and the principal who upheld Izzy's suspension guilty of violating both district policy and federal Title IX regulations for targeting a student based on their identity. Now the ACLU has stepped in to urge the school board to actually act on those findings uh, beyond the small punitive measures that have been taken to make sure it never happens to another student again. For the record, the bus driver, in addition to violating uh, federal Title IX regulations, straight up lied in her report about the student claiming Izzy had actually said, I'm a f***ing lesbian uh, instead of I'm a lesbian. That claim was disproven by video evidence. But even if it had been uttered, I feel that's a phrase I would be comfortable defending in any court. The Supreme Court just ruled cheerleaders are allowed to curse on TikTok, so I think we can afford to let our queer youth sneak in a good F-bomb for the sake of dramatic effect. We're entitled to at least that much. All right, our third headline of the week. The organization that's been running Boston's Pride Parade abruptly shut down after 50 years. After more than 50 years in operation, uh, Boston Pride has dissolved their entire organization. The group was one of the oldest Pride organizations in the country and had been facing criticism, including among members of the LGBTQ community who called for a change in leadership and the group's bylaws. Uh, Boston Pride had recently lost about 80% of their volunteers during a boycott after former volunteers said that the board removed the phrase Black Lives Matter from a statement without the knowledge of its Black Pride committee members 
members. And workers also cited instances of racism and transphobia when explaining why they quit. Uh, before the announcement of the group's end, Boston Pride Board President Linda DeMarco said she was actually ready to resign in the coming weeks. For now, groups like Trans Resistance Massachusetts and Boston Dyke March are stepping up to fill the space left by Boston Pride's absence, uh, an abrupt one at that. Boston Dyke March issued a statement saying they're appalled but sadly unsurprised by Boston Pride's abrupt ending. Despite being offered every opportunity to be part of the solution, they have chosen to disassemble, taking as they go resources given to Pride by the community, they said in a statement. Uh, Trans Resistance also released a statement saying Boston Pride made this decision instead of meeting with trans and queer BIPOC community activists or listening to repeated community demands for the board to resign, transition leadership, and create more inclusive bylaws. Pride has always belonged to the people. And look, I will say it is a deeply gay thing to throw your hands up and threaten to quit at the slightest bit of criticism. There is something very uh, primal and queer about that instinct. Uh, but the key word here is threaten, right? We're not going to follow through in this instance. Thankfully, there are other groups willing to step up because uh, Boston Pride did. But it's a shame Boston Pride's resources and institutional recognition couldn't have been put to use by better leadership when so many people have historically depended on that group. So we'll see how that story uh, develops. But I'm sure, you know, we're going to find a way to celebrate regardless of whether or not institutions are there to bring us bank floats. I'm sure we'll figure it out. Now that we've gone through our headlines of the week, it is time to introduce our next guest. They're a New York-based actor, writer, and stand-up comic. They have shared stages with comedians like Kate Bornstein, Aparna Nancherla, and Rosie O'Donnell. They've appeared in very short films and very funny publications and a ton of digital comedy projects. Most recently, you may have seen them on shows like These Thems and Love Life. And they've also worked as a writer on the upcoming Audible series, White Hot Heist. I want to talk about all these things and more. Please welcome to the QWERTY podcast, Jess Tom. How are you doing? Hi, Gabe. It's nice to see you. It's, it's really, really nice, nice to see you again. Yeah, it's been, well, a long time. It's been I feel like the, uh, maybe the last time we hung out was, uh, I want to say, like a, a backyard pride show where we were talking about the meat scene and the favorites. That sounds about right. I think about that conversation a lot sometimes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think about that film a lot sometimes. I, wa I watched it with my mom uh, when I went back to, to visit her in Tampa after the pandemic for some reason. Why did you do that? I have no idea. She was like, I've never seen it. And I think she thought it would be something that would be up my alley, which, yeah, but it was uh, a much more uncomfortable was it up watch her alley? with my mom. I think it might be. I don't know. I would love it, uh, an Ingrid Renaissance, but I, I, I doubt it. I think she was just... <laughs> <sighs> These wishful mom thoughts. I know many, many a potential queer MILF to be uncovered post pandemic. And I'm trying. I'm trying my best. <laughs> There's a reality competition I would love to see hosted by you and only you. I want to do that. Or I want to do like The Bachelor where it's like me and a bunch of mommy doms and everybody has has to fight for me. Not the other way around. That doesn't appeal to me. But, no, but not at all. if it's about me. <laughs> Your host and uh, I guess what? What do they call it? Arbiter of the Roses, perhaps? They still hand those out, right? They do. They do. I have a friend, Lauren Salaya of the Brooklyn Museum, who has always said she would be my Chris Harrison. So I, I feel an obligation to name her in this moment. So she knows I'm not <laughs> moving ahead on this project without her. I really love that. Weren't there two Drag Race queens that recently... Actually, I think I discovered this because of your tweet. Okay. Yes, this <laughs> happened on uh, the last episode of The Bachelorette to come out. They had Monet Exchange and Shea Coulee Ooh, on the show. Wow. Yes, which I'm not really I'm not really a drag race person. So I'm not super familiar with them like specifically, but it was really, really interesting to see them bring drag queens onto like The Bachelor franchise. And at first I really hated it. Like I really, <laughs> really hated it. I also thought, to be honest, that there was 
kind of a weird race thing that they were doing, bringing on, like, two black drag queens to this, like, white woman's, like, bachelorette show. <laughs> oh, God. But then... And they they had like set up basically they were setting up like like a, a shade competition for the guys and they were really really bad at it and I was like this is so horrible this is the death of culture they put drag <laughs> queens on like eight p.m. ABC primetime this is not right but then Monet and Shea Coulee started uh, causing discord and conflict <gasps> among them like they started they saw that the game didn't work and they sure. were like who's the worst man here <gasps> for Katie and it like blew oh, the entire wow. room up. And then I was like, that's okay. That's, yes, that's what we're here to do. The actual gay agenda is to come on and totally disrupt heterosexuality. I love that they won you over, that there was a major 180 in this. That's like a real emotional so roller coaster. Yes. I was so glad. I was like, no, we're breaking format. Mm. We are destroying these people. We're hurting their feelings. We are calling into question the truth of these people's heterosexual marriage pursuits. I'm for that, actually. I love it. I truly love it. It's funny because I think they're both really accomplished outside of the show. But to ask who's the worst is like a classic drag race question they throw in. Yes. They like pepper in late in the season. It's like, who should go home? And inevitably, like one person opens the floodgates. And as soon as one name is thrown out, everybody else says that name. Did and that, that was happen? exactly what happened. Yes! That was exactly what happened. But the thing is, is that I feel like, OK, like queens, like gay people, queer people in general, we can be vicious. We can of be scathing. Course. That makes sense to ask on Drag Race, to ask these straight people mm. to suddenly name who is the worst is very, like, anti to their culture, I feel like. They're going to take it and too it, personally. It, yeah. It shook them up. No, people got eliminated because of it. It changed wow. the dynamic. It changed the dynamic in the room. And a guy that The Bachelorette really, really liked ended up getting eliminated because, because was... all these guys turned on him. <laughs> Wait, I'm fully going to watch this season now. I think you've made a, a disciple out of me. This is fantastic. I mean, or horrifying. I've become like weirdly, and I'm not even, I got into the Bachelor franchise like in the pandemic. I'm not even, I don't even really like reality TV. Mm -hmm. But they're doing something really interesting now where after the last Bachelor season with Matt James, who was the first Black Bachelor, now they're starting to bring in these questions of race. Mm. And these questions of like sex positivity is a big thing that they misuse a lot on this season. Um, apparently, there is like a, a token like gay man host who they bring in every so often to just torture these guys. Oh, God. <laughs> but then to bring in drag queens also. It's just been really interesting how they're changing the form. That's a really fun twist. I, now that you've told me how it works out, I kind of, I do like it. Because there is, you know, I don't know, there's always that moment where it's like, oh, this could get really cringe. It's funny, we did, um, we actually just had Peppermint on a couple of episodes ago. And she was talking yes, to us. Her. Yeah, fantastic. Talking to us about how during the pandemic, all these executives were like, kind of just suddenly freaking out about race and like, how they were talking about it within their own company. We're like, hey, can, can you all just like dress up in drag and maybe do like a Zoom with our all white executive board or something like that? And, um, Peppermint's like, actually, this was one of the reasons that I ended up creating the Blacktown Hall event, because I was like, well, if you all want to, like, pay us to educate people, then, like, pay us to put on an event where we sort of do it on our own terms instead of getting ready in drag and, like, collecting, like, 50 bucks for giving, right. like, a half hour talk, even though it took us two and a half hours to get ready. It's so wild, because I do feel like, I don't know, suddenly everyone's turning to, like, drag queens to fix our societal ills. It's like, we can do it in a fun and easy way, like... <laughs> I feel like people really maybe saw the concept of like 
uh, drag queen story time. Yeah. And are like, and they could do that for us. But it's like, okay, you're not a child. <laughs> we don't, nobody Aren't has to though? just show up and do this for you. I yeah. mean, but not in any of the good ways. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Oh, God. But yeah, I don't know. It's that's I, I can't believe I'm about to watch an episode of The Bachelor tonight. This is absolutely I've a wild turn of events. A total evangelist. I don't know what's happened to me. I've changed. I've changed over the past year. <laughs> I've changed. I can't. I love it. Um, OK, so besides uh, The Bachelorette, what has sort of been consuming your your daily routine uh, lately? Are you like kind of getting back into the stand up wagon? I know there's some creative projects, uh, a podcast called The Favorites. We uh, Tessa Scarra and I did just release our podcast, The Favorites. Um, the second episode just came out the other day. And that's been really, really fun. That's been honestly a passion project that has existed for us since before the pandemic. And then once everything went down, we were like, well, now this is kind of the way we have to communicate with each other. And so that's how that finally came to be. Outside of that, like, I know I was saying um, just before we started that I haven't actually been on a Zoom meeting in a really long time. Oh, gosh. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. I've, um, I know it's nostalgic for me now. I have been kind of striking out into the world. I decided I did. Um, I wrote in a mini room for the Taika Waititi pirate show, Our Flag Means Death on HBO oh, Max. wow. Cool. Yeah. So that's they're going into production right now. And I did that at the beginning of the summer. It was a really short job, three weeks, mm-hmm. made enough money that I was like, you know what? I want to have my hot girl summer. Yes. And since then, I kind of just stepped away from the whole setup and have just been like doing shows and going on dates and going to the beach and stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. You're having your own Bachelor franchise spinoff right now. I really love this. I kind of am. I'm I'm coming into like a, a late in life bisexuality for the first time. Yes. Because I never did bisexuality before. I sort of just skipped ahead. I was like, that's fine. I don't have to do that. And now, now I'm coming back to it. I know it was a seminal phase for me. Absolutely. I went through a, a phase of bisexuality in high school. And it's weird to talk about because I think in a way it was a, an odd defense mechanism, but also felt true. And I feel like I'm like kind of le- relearning how it's true. I don't know. I totally. just feel like gender is collapsing around me. And I'm like, what is what does that make me call myself Absolutely. now? <laughs> it's Absolutely. Great. I mean, the thing that I feel like I'm learning is that like none of this is real. Yeah. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Like, I I definitely do feel like because I came out really, really early. I was like 13, 14 years old. And I sort of like put the wall up and was like, I'm I'm like a lesbian. Like, this is what I know about myself. This is what I like. And I like will never look in the other direction. I'll never look. Um and now, just as as an adult coming into myself in a lot of different ways, I'm like, actually, 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 it's fine. Like, actually, it's fine. Yeah, it's so funny because I think the older I get, the more these things sort of dissolve before my eyes in a really like mm-hmm. lovely explosion of whatever it is. And it's just it's great to know and learn. I think somebody recently posted this like oddly prescient clip of Kim Cattrall in a Sex in the City episode from 2000. That mm-hmm. was just like, yes, talking to Carrie about how seriously she takes gender roles and like how in the yes. future no one's going to care about gender all they're going to care about Everyone's is like being be hot yeah, it's been, mm-hmm. yeah and it's like hi we're here 21 years later um and you should be in the reboot again <laughs> i uh i'm gonna miss her a lot i'm gonna miss her a lot 
yeah, and I would be way, way invested in that project if she was going to be there. I mean, naturally, Truly. naturally, Kim Cattrall is the one that I'm interested in. Personally. Naturally. I Yeah, I've always said I'm absolutely, I think I'm going to watch because I'm just interested, but I, it's going to be odd to see this show without uh, the least self-aware one of the bunch, right? I think Kim yes. Cattrall always had a, a healthy amount of like humor about her life well, in general. Well, to me, she was the one that had sex. Right. She was the sex. Like, I'm sort of like, now I'm like, okay, so it's a show about, like, women in their 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's that's cool. That's great. Are they going to let Cynthia be a lesbian? True. That's what I want to Are they going to allow that? Are we going to have 50-year-old lesbian Cynthia, or are we going to watch her, like, put on her straight pants again? Like, I just don't, really, in 2021, I just have a question, you know, and I'm open to being wrong. That's all. I just, yeah, it would hurt to watch Cynthia have to pretend to be married to that frumpy basketball player. Very handsome one, but I just, it, I'd never understood. It, it It would hurt. That's what I'll say. <sighs> I just think, you know, there was a time and a place for that and we're not in it anymore. We're not there. We're moving on. Samantha the predicted the future. On. Yes. She had to sacrifice herself a la Buffy and, oh God, I'm forgetting the season. Someone's going to murder me for that. Anyway, she'll come back to life. It's great. Her predictions are coming true. Um, We are actually going to take a very, very quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about some other writing projects that have happened uh, during post-pandemic. I don't even know when. Stuff I want to ask about. And just uh, chat more generally about um, life and what's happening. And then we're going to play a little game. um, And I will introduce you to that at the end of the show. It'll be a lot of fun. But we'll be right back. All right, we are back with our guest, Jess Tom. I'm your host, Gabe Gonzalez. Maybe you skipped the intro, but let's reintroduce ourselves. <laughs> so far, um, we've been talking about The Bachelorette Against All Odds, which I'm now obsessed with. Um, we've been talking about Jess's podcast with Tessa Scarra called The Favorites, uh, which is sometimes a live show, correct? It is. It's 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 a live event show. Um, we yes. had a great one that was so much fun for Pride. Um, and as a podcast, it's about getting together our favorite queer artists and comics and asking them what's their favorite way to self-soothe, which is something we need right now, I think. Oh, I really like that. Have you had any answers that have kind of sparked a, a moment or an epiphany in you where you're like, oh, I should... I should try that. Okay, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. Here's a little peek behind the curtain is that the episodes we have so far, we recorded like six months ago. Oh my gosh, that's a different lifetime, yeah. It actually was an entirely different (laughs) lifetime, and I'm very, very interested to see moving ahead how those are going to change. Because there's a huge difference between like January 2021. I think we actually maybe did the first one on inauguration day oh wow which was crazy just by total coincidence um but that was like an entirely different deep dark lifetime from what we have now so so we have one more which is going to be with um jess solomon and iman al husseini who are so amazing amazing they're great yeah um and then and then we're gonna have we're gonna be cooking up some new stuff for you guys Yes, I can't wait. Oh, that's really exciting. Okay, this is lovely. We're going to listen. Um, another thing I've been really interested in listening to is White Hot Heist. This is a new podcast coming out uh, with Audible uh, that you helped write on, correct? I did. I did punch up on White Hot Heist. Amazing. I just, I saw that cat. First of all, Bowen, Natch, Cynthia Nixon, Absolutely. Natch. Uh, what can you tell us about that? It just sounds amazing. Your experience or obsession with the story. Obviously, I don't want you to spoil anything. I shan't. But it's an exciting project. 
Um, it's such a good project. It was so much fun um, working with Adam Goldman. Right, the writer, yeah. The punch-up room was incredible. It was me, Josh Sharp, Larry Owens, Grace Cohen-Schmidt. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I, I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. Um, but so it was just such a dream to do and to be able to like get up and like, I don't even remember when that was, December, like the depths of winter. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Finding a little joy in the depths of winter, I hope then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and come on and just be able to like see everyone like that. It really did a lot for me. That was my self-soothing oh, in that great. moment. Yeah. Um, and we just did punch up. So it was like pure fun. It was just like pure jokes, pure like reading through it and like having a laugh together and like not having to like come up with any story or character <laughs> yes, or anything yeah. important and just yeah. being like, why don't we make a joke about spatchcock chicken right here? <laughs> I hope that joke made it in. I think about it. <laughs> That'd be lovely. No, it sounds like a really great crew. And that, that idea from Adam is just spectacular. I Everything I've read mm -hmm. about it, it sounds really, really great. And now that I know the four of you did punch ups, that's really I'm just cherry on top this is really exciting i felt so good to be able to be a part of that and i just feel like the least realistic part was that uh all those uh, queer people of different identities would ever be able to work together on anything right oh just gorgeous even seeing that poster uh that illustrated poster just inspires the poster is incredible yeah. the, the poster is amazing tony kushner is in it yeah like what it's like <laughs> It's so good. In that way, it's very sort of for like queers of a certain age. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. like Tony Kushner, Cynthia Nixon. And Bowen, our Bowen. Our Bowen. Oh, Our Bowen. That was thrilling. I'm so thrilled. It's just really so lovely to see. I'm just, yeah. It's just so amazing to be at this point, you know, in our careers where like, you know, I can remember seeing Bowen at like UCB East <laughs> at like the open mic. And now he's nominated for an Emmy for SNL. It's just incredible. It's just really like, yeah, to be able to see the like arcs of people as we're like starting to really like reach our full potential oh, is God. really yeah. inspiring to me. For sure. And it's like, I think Bowen's one of those like rare people also whenever you bring his name up, like there's literally only kind things to be heard uh, about mm -hmm. him. It's and, and it's so genuine. It's not like people being fake. They're like, Bowen actually like went out on a limb for me when he didn't. Ha I have like three Bowen went out on a limb for me when he didn't have to stories. You know what I mean? Like yeah, one of the yeah, first friends no, to me book too. me on a show, just like a, an incredible, helpful, kind presence. And so it's just like, I don't know. I think we're not used to seeing kind people who deserve it yeah. get it sometimes. Yeah. And so when it does yeah. happen, it just feels that much sweeter, I think. And like seeing our people win. Yeah, it just it feels good. It feels good to see it. You don't yeah. have to like, yeah, M maybe this is sort of controversial, but I feel like a lot of like as an Asian person and as an Asian American, I feel a lot of pressure mm. in this sort of representation moment to like support a lot of projects I don't necessarily relate to or like see myself reflected in really, which no shade to those projects and I'm glad they're being made. But I'm like, I don't know that I have that much in common with Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Seven Rings. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I'm in that movie. I don't sure. know that my perspective is there. I don't know that my <laughs> story is being told. But then, so to see somebody like Bowen or to see like Bowen mm. and Joel like making their Fire Island movie yeah. together, I'm like, mm -hmm. yes, like I feel so good about that. And I, it feels nice to just be able to like fully be like there for it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, oh gosh, I, not to be like me also, but I, I feel like 
Um, disparate, I guess, for lack of a better word, marginalized communities have been kind of facing this like quandary of, of having to support representation at all costs. I feel like I, mm-hmm. I just saw this whole like a very parallel dialogue happening with a within the Heights, right, and sort of critiquing of colorism the there. Heights. It's like right, and it's like how dare any Latino speak against in the Heights? And it's like, well, how is our work going to be better if we don't critique it, right? And so it's like oh it's fine God. to not see yourself in a project that people think needs to succeed. It will find its people, right? And it doesn't always have to be you. You don't have to be. Yeah, exactly. It's like. So my girlfriend and I, we just we happened to come back home to my house when my roommates were in the middle of watching In the Heights. Mm-hmm. And we like sat and we like watched a couple numbers and then we're like, OK, like we have to go away from this. But she was like, yeah, you know, as as a white Puerto Rican who grew up in New York, I felt very represented by that <laughs> in that moment. And I was like, that's good. 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 Yeah. That's what... yeah. She was like, yeah, I said, yeah, that was me. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It's like I. That that to me is this trap of the whole like kind of pan ethnic pan Latino identity mm-hmm, where it's like mm-hmm. we all have to be able to relate f- uh, to traditions from Central America and the Caribbean and South America and it's like we can all be di- right it's like it doesn't yes, have to we be can all everything. be different we can right. I do think I mean not to not to conflate experiences but I do think that something happens with Latinos and with East Asians and like sort of East Asian Southeast Asians mm-hmm. where we're like yeah oh, we're all kind of like in there we're all like in the mix with each other we're all kind of the same and like at least for asian people i'm like okay that's because of like imperialism and genocide if we have things in common that's why it is literally um, same with us yeah it's like well, yeah. So, <laughs> ugh, but we're not ready to talk about that yeah it's wild i was actually um watching two it was marisol lebron and another puerto rican academic kind of talking on twitter about the parallel ways in which asian american and latin american communities are like racialized and and how sort of latino and and asian become these broad like racial categories that have in some mm-hmm. way been constructed and how that sort of racializes people of br- very broad identities in a, in a broad way and i don't know it was interesting because i hadn't quite thought about it in that in that way or that perspective but you the points you've brought up like kind of brings back i'm like something i read on twitter i'll absolutely mm-hmm. pull it up now um but it, it's there <laughs> no but it's real and also the ways that we are able to interact with whiteness mm-hmm. in certain ways or like have like a white sort of adjacency mm-hmm. and i won't speak to i won't speak to latinidad but um it is interesting like the way that i feel like like i can sort of disappear into a room of white people but also not in like a different kind of way yeah it's I, there's a whole god i hate to be this person but like literally i've been i started just unpacking this idea during a chunk of my set and sort of like the ways that like I don't know, uh, whiteness reads or operates within Latino communities, especially mm-hmm. because like there are so many people who can kind of trace their heritage back to like literal <laughs> Europeans from Spain. So it's right. like it is so easy to pass whether or not you might uh, identify that way. And I think sometimes feeling that your identity is racialized doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, a person of color. I don't know. It's like but all these terms are sort of like catch alls that kind of fail to capture nuance no, in any or way. like they only apply in like certain contexts in like the united states specifically right and then mm-hmm. it's really different elsewhere yeah because whenever i'm in latin america um yeah people are never like i'm latino they're like i'm colombian i'm puerto rican or like mm-hmm. my family's from like cuba and ecuador it's just uh i don't know i feel like nationality is sort of the forward-facing kind of identifier there in a way it's not or maybe just sort of smashed together in the united states in a way that it's like we're a melting pot we're smushing it all mm-hmm I don't, but yeah, um, it's the perpetual quandary of of words. 
<laughs> and how they fail us. Yes, precisely, precisely. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for taking this tangent and finding parallel experiences. Um, again, not to speak on behalf of your identity as well, but I think I appreciated some of those stories and uh, God, not to bring back in the heights, but please. I'm glad you saw no, the last please. half. <laughs> it looked like fun. It looked yeah. like it looked like great fun. My my mother and grandmother told me they went to see it in the theater, and my mom said it was very good, but it would have been more fun with more people in the theater. And I was like, "Okay, girl, well, you can't have that right now." <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That. I agree. The energy of a crowd is intoxicating. Unfortunately, you cannot. She was like, "The only person coughing in the theater was grandma." I was like, "I'm glad you brought our 85 year old grandma out to scare everybody else." <laughs> Just. Just for In the Heights. I love it. That's Just so for In though. the Heights. I'm glad you guys had fun. It's okay. Uh, my grandma wanted to go to a... Oh gosh, where was it? It was a fondue place uh, the first day I went to visit her in Tampa post-pandemic. Oh my god, yes. The iconic post-COVID snack, fondue. Right. Just dipping pieces Just touch of meat it and into dip cheese. It. Yeah, touch drip, it and dip yeah. it. Ugh. Ugh horrifying um but yeah she's just she just turned 81 i accidentally called her 82 and she was very swift to correct wow. me that was my i know wow. it's my wow. fault wow. <laughs> um okay so before we get to uh this little segment at the end i do want to ask about one last thing obviously you've got a very uh lovely prop from a series you're shooting with netflix on your back wall that called my attention and fans of yours may have seen it if they have also seen this series um can you talk to us about what it's been like sort of working on this netflix project during the pandemic and kind of i guess mapping iconic moments in uh, television and film to your advice. I, I kind of love the way you've woven these aspects together in the series. It's a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to work on this video series with Netflix. Um, it was my concept mm -hmm. to do the advice show that's sort of interspersed with clips from whatever featured like queer shows they're doing right now. Yeah. And I like that because it's sort of like sort of like you're getting the advice from like me and all your favorite characters on TV. The real truth of the matter is, is that I'm just trying to find fun ways to like engage with this content, engage with these shows, engage with the audience without being like, this is a commercial. Absolutely. Because it's like, I don't know, it's it's part of the gig very often, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, I think if you can get to choose to interact, like you said, if you can find a project that speaks to you, um, that you think is a compelling story, a story worth seeing, that in some way you can see reflected in your own like sexual or romantic foibles. Like I, that's why we watch, right? Like we mm -hmm. kind of see little bits or shards of our own failures in these narratives. And I, I don't necessarily expect every character to be relatable, but I think sometimes even the most of the stories that are most unlike my life kind of might uncover this sort of kernel of commonality that is really exciting. And I think it kind of goes beyond, right, the memification of of the TV show, right? Because I think that's totally. sort of the ultimate goal of the meme to decontextualize to the point of being related to whatever you need it to be in that moment. But I mean, yeah. it's fun to find like the themes, like find like where is like a toxic relationship? Where is like a first love? Where is somebody discovering a new thing about themselves and kind of apply it to these real life scenarios? Because they are real. Like all the questions are real people. Oh, I asking love that questions. Too. Yeah. I'm only interested in doing things like that. I'm not really interested in like making up people or making up these stories. I really want to know like what's people's real tea and like what's like the real advice that I can give to real people. I love that because there's so many shows where I'm like, I feel like a producer wrote that for you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like every now and then I'm like, did someone really this wording is a little too 
too much. But yeah, I love that because the letters you read do feel very authentic. And I think those situations are very relatable. And it's, I don't know, it's very nice. They're real. They're real <laughs> They're things real. that people are living through. And I yes. like, I love the idea that like somewhere, you know, for obviously for the general audience, anybody can watch it and relate to something about it and hopefully take something out of it. But there's one person or like two people who are like, oh, that's me. Like, and now. Like, what am I going to do? Oh my do? gosh, right? It's like your post secret and you picked their postcard. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Oh, wow. Yes. That's such and a And I don't even thing. know who yeah. they are, you know, because right, I, yeah. I just take the questions and I put them in a doc. Yeah. I, I don't look at the accounts. I don't look at anybody's name. I don't keep any of that. So I forget entirely. That's um, so it's just somebody out there knows that it's them. Oh, wow. And it's literally just for them. Only they'll ever know. Oh, that's mm. so beautiful. Oh, that's a great little. Mm, yeah. Okay. I feel like there's a whole new narrative. I want to go back and watch every episode with this new subtext that I've now uncovered. This is fantastic. Um, okay, so before we get to this last segment, I want to ask you genuinely, what's like one thing happening in the future? It can be personal. It can be like a TV show. It can be anything. What's something that you're really looking forward to or very excited about? My uh, my best friend has is spending a summer in Connecticut after being first in Taiwan and then in San Francisco for the majority of the pandemic. And so I'm going to go, my girlfriend and I are going to take a little trip to Connecticut to spend some time with them. I've just been feeling very precious about, you know, the time I get to spend with people because it hasn't been happening a lot. Or like, I feel like I, I really did adapt, like in the pandemic, I did mm. adapt to Zoom. I did adapt to like hanging out with people like 100% on FaceTime um, and like finding the joy in that and finding fulfillment in that. Being able to actually like really be with people, especially people who I haven't gotten to see for like a bunch of like maybe I wouldn't have even if it wasn't a pandemic because hmm. um, they're far away or whatever has been uh, really meaningful to me. Oh, that's so lovely. I, I think you encapsulated that sentiment really well. It's, you know, you see the faces, but it's kind of, there's been something very special and unique about like encountering friends in person again. Mm -hmm. This has been very lovely, but I can't, the thrill of seeing you at a show again is going to be spectacular. I, I know. I can't wait. Great. I can't yeah. wait. And I feel like I, I'm just really trying to have like more of, more of an appreciation for these types of things. Whereas before, I think I didn't make as much time for like my friendships and my relationships that way. And so now I really want to do that. Yeah. I'm saying yes to every park hang now. Someone's going to hold Say me to yes. this, but I used to be like yeah. a park hang. Now I'm like a park hang. We're, no, me too. Happening. People's birthday yeah. parties and shit. I'm there. Yeah. I'm like oh, totally I'm there nice. being weird in the corner. Yes. Same. It's going to be great. Um, okay. So just before I let you go, I do have one, a little segment, maybe a game uh, I like to call Queerly Beloved, in which we ask our guests to eulogize uh, a trend, a phenomenon, a person, a piece of queer lingo that has long since passed, but oh never God. got its due credit. Uh, something from the past that was just gone too soon that you'd like to bring back. A few examples uh, that we've had in the past. I think Coco Peru suggested a, a sensible two-inch heel. Those were gone too soon. Cute. Bianca Del Rio said Benifer, which was uh, oddly predictive. It was a little scary. And Peppermint said jelly bracelets, which I crudely oh. labeled sex bracelets. I know, yeah. Those should come back. They should. should totally. People, that will be back it, within five years. That'll be yeah. back for sure. I would love to bring them back with the actual code people thought middle schoolers were inventing to describe different crude mm -hmm. acts. I, mm -hmm. I think that's jelly bracelets are the new no, hanky we're code. Adults and no, we're now. We can yet. do it. Yeah, we can do sure. it for real. Okay. I want to say 
Tumblr. Oh, okay. This is great. All right. Uh, Queerly beloved, we are gathered here today uh, to mourn the legacy of Tumblr, which was gone too soon. And just Tom is is going to let us know why. I, you know, I I know that many people f- have controversial feelings about Tumblr or they feel negatively towards Tumblr. But I was close with Tumblr. We were close <laughs> with each other. I knew Tumblr very well. Um, and I feel like Tumblr really influenced me in a really positive way. The thing is um, that Tumblr in its heyday had a really clear algorithm that was really different from the way that like Twitter and Instagram operate now. Like Twitter, Instagram, you know, you can mute people, you can block people, they still show up. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Instagram will straight up show you a picture of your ex, like on <laughs> the Explore page. The, it, it'll show you, like Instagram got the wind that I was starting hormones and all of a sudden it was all like white buff trans gym guys. And I was like, this is actually really upsetting to me to like get shown on Tumblr you could really, really curate what it was you saw. And so I was on Tumblr in college going through this sort of like identity crisis slash revolution where I suddenly, you know, decided I was like, uh, you know what, I'm obsessed with like whiteness and white supremacy and this queer gaze. And I don't want to be like that anymore. So I changed my Tumblr settings so that I only saw people of color and it was possible to do stuff like that, sort of. I mean, not like you couldn't, you couldn't like uncheck the white, like that right, wasn't yeah. what it was. It's not <laughs> Grinder in 2008. Sure, it took um, a little work, yeah. <laughs> which you couldn't do on Grinder. You could not uncheck white on Grinder either. But I, you could like only follow people who were like only posting like queer and trans people of color, like these points of view, these images. And it really rewired my brain. It like changed me. It changed me a lot. And it's not like that anymore. Yahoo came in, bought Tumblr and took off the porn and took off sex workers. And all of a sudden, like those opinions, those points of views are gone. I don't know about the rest of it. But like after that sort of, you know, bedrock core point of view wasn't there anymore. Um, I really think it changed the whole website. And I don't know, I I just grew up and grew out of it. But like, I really think that I was very positively affected by Tumblr in its heyday. And now it's sort of become like its reputation is for like, it's a place for like teens to fight over like what a lesbian is. (laughs) And I think it used to be an arena for like really, really important and interesting conversation. Um, And it's not anymore. So yeah. Tumblr, RIP. Oh, thank you. RIP Tumblr. Power. That's one of the most, I think, um, beautiful defenses I've heard of. Because t- most everybody's just like, my porn disappeared, which is like valid. I, I felt that too. But I was never a, a Tumblr person. And it's it's like really beautiful to sort of hear uh, about that. I don't know, kind of fluid cur- curatorial experience that you can't, you really just can't do anymore. I mean, and it's interesting to like, because I feel like when we say something like, like porn, mm-hmm. like we have a really sort of flat idea of like what that is so when we're like you know there's no more porn on tumblr that sounds like one thing Mm -hmm. but i think that the function of it was that i was like you know i probably could have i probably was like seeing yeah like trans people of colors bodies Mm -hmm. and stuff you know, like those people, like not so much like studio porn blah, 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 and everything, but like people <laughs> who were creators and like, you know, making their own content um, in, a, in a more sort of accessible way. Yeah, it's kind of like a pre OnlyFans pre monetization way to sort of like share erotic content for sure. 
I think it's possible. I mean, I don't really remember like any specific instances of this, but I think it's probable that all of that was sort of filtering in for me and like ways for me to understand my own body and my own identity and my own self from like what we would call quote unquote porn. And yeah, I think it's sad that that's gone. Oh, all right. Well, hopefully, I don't know. Maybe Benefer's back. Let's bring back Tumblr instead. Benefer's back. Yeah. Benefer's back. We can do anything. Benefer's back. Jesus is back. Anything <laughs> might come back at Truly. any moment. Gosh. Yeah. I don't know. We. I could talk a whole episode about this like anti-sex work, anti-sex wave mm-hmm. happening across the internet. But that is another time. Jess, we've reached the end of this episode of the Quirty Podcast. I can't thank you enough for joining me. And before we let you go, uh, I do have to ask, where can our listeners find you online or in the real world absolutely um you can find me on social media on twitter at jess tom that's j-e-s-t-o-m or on instagram at just the kid and if you look at those closely enough you can find out where you'll see me in real life too yes i love that um well thank you again so much for coming on um and hanging out with us there's so many exciting projects you're a part of that we'll all get to see soon and i'm really excited about that thanks gabe this is really fun And that is all we've got for today. So if you're listening, please make sure to support the QWERTY podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review our show right now wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get your QWERTY fix every day at QWERTY.com. QWERTY has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. QWERTY is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shireen Lani Yunez, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Tracy Soren, Joe Cilio, Brett Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D. Motz. Forever!